0: Hi, I'm Chinny, I'm Astrid, and welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonises history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Welcome to episode four of It's a Continent we're trying out recording at home as our local studio is obviously closed so do forgive us if the sound quality is a little bit off
1: yeah we are trying our best with this we've tested it out it should be it should be all good it should be all fine and i think it's all right (laughs) i decided to make a list of other things to blame the poor sound quality on other than us two so first one being carol baskin
0: she has been blamed for everything to be honest anything and everything
1: mother nature's revenge a potential other candidate and anything else that's coming through on whatever whatsapp chain message you're linked to at the moment whatever your that. auntie has sent you
0: <laughs> whatever if your this... auntie has sent you that is the reason why this sound quality is patchy so, but we move
1: yeah we keep going we keep going
0: In this week's episode we're discussing Rwanda and its rebirth into a successful thriving and sustainable country following colonisation and genocide. So considering uh, Rwanda's difficult recent history it's really a testament of the steps the government took to bounce back.
1: So for us we really felt it was important to recognise that not only did you know Rwanda have a comeback after kind of its genocide but Today it does still continue to face economic and political issues, but the way in which the government at the time, the country handled its comeback following colonization and genocide was for us, yeah, quite interesting. And it's something mm. it was important to also bring that positive element um to to light as well, but still recognising um some of the issues and difficulties that the country does still face.
0: Definitely. Um, and arsenal fans among you like myself may notice that visit rwanda is our sleeve sponsor and i think that's probably the first time i've seen an african tourism campaign that doesn't involve a picture of lions that's quite rare isn't it
1: yes we're finally doing it we can have other connotations other than just the lion (laughs) you can just be (laughs) a country
0: We've had enough of Lion go. we've uh, actually moved on to other forms of tourism.
1: hmm check this out.
0: So whilst it's great that none of the Lion King cast make an appearance in the Visit Rwanda campaign, uh, it's kind of been, you know, looked at with some measure of scrutiny, as Rwanda has spent £30 million on this deal, which for some seems frivolous, as Rwanda's president Paul Kagame just happens to be a huge Arsenal fan, and this is all happening whilst Rwanda is receiving financial aid from countries such as the UK
1: imagine that the country you're giving financial aid to is then spending i'm not saying they're spending that money but spending that much on your
0: (laughs) i just want to meet my hero okay i've just always wanted to meet hector bellerin and that is why i'm spending this money
1: honestly this guy is just like does not care at all he's got no shame no shame he's just like no no obviously we're going to invest in tourism. Uh, we want to invest in tourism we'll go for the uk arsenal that'll be a great one they're also giving us money so hey
0: (laughs) what a coincidence wow wow So proponents of this deal have argued that this came from a different pot to the international aid pot, and that Rwanda is actually seeking to bring in £300 million of new revenue via tourism, seeing as Arsenal is one of the most popular football clubs in Rwanda, and the UK has one of the the highest number of tourists in the world. This indirectly shows a way in which Rwanda has reorientated from a Francophone country to an Anglophone country. So... They're removing their former colonial legacy by adhering to another coloniser.
1: See, I fully get the whole tourism thing, do you know what I mean? That's how much you're trying to bring in. But, I don't, I don't know, there's something funny about going on, investing in your favourite club. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a bit
0: dodgy, do you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> just a tad, just a tad. So... For context, we wanted to give you a bit of a short overview in terms of what happened during Rwanda's genocide before we get into how they uh, kind of came back um, from this. The genocide was one of the most brutal and horrific tragedies in recent years. We mentioned in episode one how Nigeria's civil war seemed to start a theme of genocidal acts taking place in other African countries. For many of these countries, this is a result of different ethnic groups being forced to cohabit in a new nation. So let's just put you all together and name you something new.
0: Classy this sounds familiar.
1: Tell me about it, honestly. That copy and paste job just keeps just keeps <laughs>
0: carrying on throughout. These colonisers are not creative, I can mm. tell you that. No.
1: So in Rwanda's case, the war took place between two ethnic groups, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Essentially, these groups spoke the same language and citizens could change between the two based on the number of cattle they acquired or who they married. Tutsi originally meant someone who had the most cattle. However, when Germans came along in 1894, they gave the Tutsis responsibility. Um, Then when Rwanda was handed over to the Belgians in 1916 after... You know the Germans lost Rwanda as a colony after World War One. Can I just say, handed over, <laughs> handed over. Really, what is this? A game of plaster parcel? Like seriously?
0: Like you know, there was where it's like, oh, sorry, can you look after my dog? I've just, I'm just going away from the yeah, weekend. Just, that's that's, really, that's pretty much this, what's happening here. <laughs> this
1: is you just can't even believe that this was possible. But hey. It happened. Here's Belgium, guys. Here they are. Hey, there they are. Honestly, they are fully making their colonisation derby third place ranking official here now.
0: Pretty much. And in our previous episode on the DRC, we can see how Belgium treated the DRC um, whilst it was a colony of Belgium. So, I mean, we can't really expect anything less from them, to be honest.
1: No, definitely not and so once the belgians took over they pitted the tutsis and hutus against each other under belgian rule rwandans had to carry identity cards stating if they were hutu or tutsi the belgians felt that tutsis were superior to hutus so tutsis generally appeared taller and thinner with perhaps a lighter complexion and i kind of felt like whether this idea of you know lighter complexion really played on this idea of you know colorism you know I got of colorism right here
0: but you know yeah I mean that's what happens it's you know colorism kind of looks at those Africans who may perhaps have slightly more Eurocentric features and then they're treated more favorably and this is something that has been going on for centuries so it's no surprise that the colonizers decided to bring that mentality over to Rwanda yeah
1: definitely not and As a result, Tutsis, despite being only 10% of the population, received better jobs and educational opportunities. As a result, Hutus built up resentment and they took power post-colonisation. On the 6th of April 1994, Rwanda's president, Juvenal Habiyanema, a Hutu, I am so sorry if I've mispronounced his name, was shot down by a totalitarian regime. Hutu extremists took over the Rwandan government blaming Tutsis and started their slaughter campaign. Between April and June of that year, 800,000 Rwandans were killed in 100 days. Tutsis were killed by the Hutus and a massive campaign of violence spread from Rwanda's capital throughout the country. The rest of the international community stood by and watched.
0: So, you know, this... World War II and the Holocaust had taken place so this is after those events and the UN had after those events defined genocide as a crime under international law so it kind of begs the question why didn't they step in here and Mm. um, Linda Melvin uh, an investigative journalist from Britain and the author of two books on the Rwandan genocide wrote the whole focus at the time was on the former Yugoslavia. When the genocide began, the Balkans were being bombed and the whole focus of the UN Security Council was on the former Yugoslavia, as was the focus of the Western press. Even when genocide was determined on April 29th, 1994 by Oxfam in a press release, British newspapers hardly covered that story at all. So it's a media failure, as well as a political one.
1: It's just so frustrating initially that, you know, you've had, like you said, these two big things happen in terms of World War II and the Holocaust and, Nothing. What we we're not recognising this. We're not learning any lessons. We're not trying to try and stop it before it gets to the fact that you're losing eight hundred thousand people in a hundred days. Yeah. Like.
0: Yeah.
1: What even is? Yeah. What were people thinking? Why? Do, yeah. Frustrating that no one thought to intervene. Um. Mm-hmm. And really stop this because, to a certain degree, this was all rooted. If we're looking at it from two communities. Two groups who were similar, no one had ever really created these divides. This divide yeah. is created, and everyone's like, "By Felicia, go and figure out your problems. Like you're yeah. creating the yeah. problem.
0: Exactly. Should they not be held accountable for what they caused? And why does it seem that humanity is not allowed to care for one more than one cause at a time? Because this is quite similar to what Frederick Forsyth said. Um in our first episode we talked about Nigerian Civil War.
1: Yeah. And
0: Frederick Forsyth Forsyth was saying about how um, because the Vietnam War was happening, the BBC wasn't really going to cover the war in Nigeria and Biafra at the time.
1: And I think, it, yeah, it just goes to show like the media, the media just can't handle too many <laughs> too many news at once too much, we can only do one at I, a time But
0: I, I mean, as we know, there has been one news story that's been going on for the past God knows how many days so as we know, the media can only report One story at a time, and I'm feeling that right now. Oh my
1: gosh, tell me about it. I can't get away from
0: it. (laughs) I just cannot escape it. So the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide saw economic and political disarray across the country. Its physical and social structure was now non-existent with the destruction of all government and social institutions. Two million Hutus fled Rwanda, and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda was formed to prosecute those responsible for the genocide. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda is also known as the ICTR. It was found that some of the trials held under the ICTR were essentially a political whitewash. Rwanda could have been a failed state, however its government can and should be used as a model for nations seeking reconciliation. The following stats go to show the lengths of Rwanda's development since the conclusion of the genocide. Life expectancy increased by 100% in 20 years, essentially doubled. One million people had been lifting out of poverty. Women had become the majority of legislators. 95% of people had health insurance. It became one of the safest places to live. And citizens were living longer, with better education prospects and healthier lives.
1: I think it's incredible just how much they were able to achieve in such a relatively short space of time. Like, mm. bear in mind, this was, you know, the genocide happened in the 90s. And, you know, within that 20 years, time period following it and everything, they were able to literally really help to, yeah, come back and bring themselves out of all of this, out of this situation, um, yeah, I think is, is amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy that they were able to rebuild, their rebuilding after the war was just happened on such, such a crazy timeline. Um, this is probably just under a generation and already they're doubling life expectancy, which is just madness. So we're going to go through some of the policies and the ways in which the country was rebuilt. So to reconstruct Rwanda, an emphasis was placed on nurturing a shared national identity, essentially restoring the country to what it was before colonialism, where there were no strong divides between the Hutus and the Tutsis. As mentioned earlier, there wasn't much of a difference between the two groups until the Belgians came along and started pitting them against each other. The Rwandan government decided to draw on aspects of Rwandan culture and traditional practices to enrich and adapt its development programs to the country's needs. The result is a set of homegrown solutions, and these were culturally owned practices translated into sustainable development programs. So it's interesting to see that some of these initiatives that, that we'll go through uh, were actually around in pre-colonial Rwanda, and uh, it's interesting to see how they've drew upon their heritage when they'd practically been indoctrinated to disown Mm -hmm. um, by their colonizers, you know, the current structures that were in place.
1: Yeah. And it just goes to show again, similar to when we were discussing in the Nigeria episode, like, Mm. these communities, they're not buying into what you're forcing upon them. They're not bought into it. So you go back to what you know. And for the Rwandans, it was this is our heritage, this is what we know, and this is where we feel... I hear the word most authentic self, but where we feel <laughs> I feel like Your I'm best giving, self. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm giving like a self-help talk. Yeah, where they felt themselves um, and felt where they could find really the best solution for their community, which I think, yeah, is great. Let's take a look at some of these initiatives. So the first one being Gakaka. So pre-colonization saw Gakaka take place. And this is essentially a system of community based courts where criminals were tried in front of the community whilst also giving victims a space to speak and forgive. This was essentially, you know, similar to your traditional courts with the idea of reconciliation between the two parties really kind of differentiating it from kind of what we know uh, now. So colonisation had a significant impact on this process with Gakaka reserved only for civil and commercial cases which involve Rwandans. Any cases that involved colonisers and criminal cases were processed under colonial jurisdiction. I wonder why.
0: Hmm. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That was a (laughs) non-shady.
0: It could be shady towards the colonisers.
1: So this, This weakened the power of Kakaka as whilst justice systems imported from Europe didn't stop Kakaka from operating, the number of cases in this environment really dropped. After Rwandan independence, regimes in power often appointed administrative officials to Kakaka. So this very much removed the community aspect and therefore eroded both the integrity and trust uh, within those communities. So Like, it's very much, you know, weakening and devaluing existing systems that they had set in place, even though this is very much... It has strong similarities to what, you know, Europe is doing in terms of having a court system. But you know what? You can't have this community feel. We're we're not doing community spirit here. You gotta... No. You gotta gotta check that. You gotta check that. (laughs) It's
0: it's the idea of how, like, they're saying we're civilising them, but actually... There, there was a civil court type system in place already, so it, that didn't necessarily need to be civilised, you know? I know, but I feel
1: like at the time people were thinking, but if, even though it's the same as ours, we need to make it, it's not ours. So technically they're not civilised. We need to introduce exactly the same thing. It's a bit ah. like, do you know what this reminds me of? Is being in a meeting given an idea and then someone senior up copies that idea and just rewords it and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm glad that Ooh. no one on this team, oh the amount of times that has happened, I cannot I cannot, it literally feels like that it's <laughs> triggered me, it's triggered me
0: <laughs> It's basically like uh, legislation appropriation Oh my god, so true That's a new term, I've just new, coined that Love right. that, legislation i going to write a thick piece on that after this mm-hmm. episode
1: Love it in 2002, Gakaka was revived to process millions of criminal cases that arose post-genocide. So, the objective of Gacaca was to, you know, find out and disclose the truth about the genocide, speed up genocide trials, end a culture of impunity, and really holding people accountable, as uh, strengthening unity and reconciliation, and really demonstrate capacity for Rwandans to solve their own problems. In total. Just under 2 million genocide-related cases were tried through Gakaka. This laid the foundation for peace, reconciliation and unity. The majority of perpetrators were dealt with in this way as they confessed and pleaded their cases. Survivors, with strong encouragement from the government, accepted perpetrators into the community. And, you know, this kind of Gakaka trials process concluded in 2012
0: it's interesting how the uh emphasis here is placed on reconciliation rather than vengeance um, which is definitely what was needed at the time
1: yeah definitely they needed to i think because they were from the same country and it was important that they like focused on rebuilding rather than being uh rather than playing the blame game i don't know that's yeah. what i sense anyway because i feel like that wouldn't have gotten any anyone anywhere because you're still gonna have to live together be it someone's in prison or whatever there's still be a lot more it'll be more much more fragmented
0: yeah definitely and i think that our society um we have a lot to learn from these this sort of side of things about reconciliation uh you know quite often the the western civilization is kind of seen as a blueprint for how other countries should operate but actually i think that Western civilization has a lot to learn from, you know, these type of homegrown solutions that we see here. Another uh, practice put in place was called Ibudehe. Ibudehe refers to community development through collective action within communities and is a long-standing practice dating back more than a century. In 2001, this practice was introduced with poverty reduction at its core. The process is chaired by the president of the local committee and the village leader. Residents of the community form a key part in this as they define the level of poverty within the village. So essentially there are poverty levels ranging from the very least being abject poverty and then the highest being money rich. So this transforms citizen engagement with development of their village. The process is decentralized, so communities are brought together and there's a bank account assigned to each community to improve surroundings. Purchases also include livestock, agricultural activities, clean water, classrooms, terraces, health centres and silos used for storing harvest. This also increased skills within the local community. Ubudehe was so successful that in 2008, the programme won a United Nations Public Service Award for excellence in service delivery.
1: It's amazing just how community centric, um, I think it's just a theme yeah. throughout, you know, when we're looking at Gakaka and now Ubud-e-he, Um And it really helped with the reconciliation process. You know, it's not just the top-down approach from the government being like, right, this needs to be done here, there, everywhere, but actually really allowing people to define what they need and really build something Mm. that is suitable for their community rather than being like, we're going to do what the guys next door are doing. And imagine that, actually having the freedom to decide how your community or, you know, local area is going to spend the money.
0: Like, that is amazing. Yeah the fact that they were able to adapt you know suited to their specific needs is something that again I've not particularly seen before um and it you know as we it's the kind of the importance of a collective society versus an individualistic dis- uh, society mm-hmm. so for example here in the in the UK you can still be on the breadline and still have a full-time job essentially here yeah. but with this whole poverty reduction drive it means that not just you, but your whole community will actually benefit from something, and it's specific to your needs. Mm-hmm.
1: No, definitely, and you can really have like a say in terms of where your community is going and really building that. I think it's yeah, yeah. it's a really it's a really nice way, um, yeah, of building that kind of community spirit and things. I feel like I'm using a lot of words I would not use in my normal day to day life. Community, community spirit,
0: spirit. but it, it feels right i love it i love it have you not <laughs> felt the community spirit when everyone's clapping you're not, not oh no, i i did
1: that? i did feel the community spirit when that happened yeah yeah. i so, don't have
0: a balcony but i'm clapping anyway i'm
1: clapping anyway so i was still clapping contributing so uh yeah definitely
0: and doesn't this remind you
1: of like quite a, a couple of strong comebacks this has made me think of like craig david comeback do you know what i mean like he disappeared and then, boom, twenty was it twenty nineteen? Little had his comeback and now, I don't want to say he's big, but he's everywhere, isn't he?
0: Well, I guess you know if you think that going on Love Island is a comeback, then um, yes, <laughs> I would say. I've I got no did expectations
1: have a for a comeback. <laughs> be your comeback who's your like comeback person musician
0: actually i kind of think kylie kylie minogue that is not the jenna person oh really nice
1: she's a really good comeback queen because i feel like yeah every album, she just
0: disappears yeah. she comes back mm, and she fits right back in i like that that's right I like that. yes like like she never left
1: so the third policy that we'll look at that the rwandan government introduced was garinka and this translates to may you have a cow this initiative delivered one cow per poor family. A cow is seen as a sign of respect and gratitude and is often used to pay a dowry in Rwandan culture. The aim of this program was to tackle the high rate of childhood malnutrition by reducing poverty. A cow improved the livelihoods of Rwandans through commercializing dairy products, increasing agricultural outputs, it gave you milk to consume and it also helped better soil fertility. Garinka was introduced in 2006 and Rwanda saw milk production increase by sevenfold. The government also introduced an initiative where a child received um, one cup of milk whilst in school every day. (laughs) Sorry, now I'm thinking that child just receives one cup and never again. (laughs) To
0: be honest, I mean, it's a bit of a re-reversal about how Margaret Thatcher took away all the cups of milk, apparently. And uh, here's Rwanda bringing that back. Giving all the milks. Yeah, guys. You
1: get a milk. During Rwandans' colonial period, owning a cow divided Rwandans along ethnic lines, and cows were seen as an elitist symbol. Following the civil war, 90% of cattle were killed. However, Gorinka successfully reunited citizens to the point where firstborn calves were often given to a neighbour and this just goes to show the extent to which social relationships were rebuilt so really just like bringing everybody together and yeah I really like this I really it's so good do you know what this makes me think of like with I'm going to use the b word brexit and how people you were either like remainer or leaver lever and people actually being quite like it was very polarizing obviously not to this level these guys had like Mm. a full-on genocide going on but rebuilding that and that aspect of thing was never really tackled i'm not saying like the government needs to give everybody a cow but i just think in terms of like moving as kind of one community was never really tackled so it's interesting how they dealt with it to make people yeah very much equal again and um yeah it was really good what would be your cow alternative to help level the socioeconomic playing field?
0: Mm, maybe everyone in their 20s gets money for a house deposit, how about that?
1: Oh, tell me about it, honestly, the struggle is real.
0: Following the genocide, improving the lives of children was also a priority. The government made sure that 97% of children were in primary school, which at the time was the highest rate in Africa. The UN named Rwanda as one of the top three countries for improving education access. Children educated in schools were strongly encouraged to stop using potentially divisive labels such as Hutu and Tutsi. The education system in Rwanda focused on building the future of a common Rwanda. Another significant development for Rwandan children is seen in vaccines. So post-war, the coverage of most childhood vaccinations recommended by the WHO fell to below 25 percent. However, within 20 years, the number of babies receiving these recommended vaccinations increased to around 95 percent. Also looking at women as well, after the killings stopped in 1994, women made 70 percent of the Rwandan population. Women were vital in leading Rwanda's recovery, swapping traditional roles for political opportunities. This political participation meant that Rwandan women generally received better education and economic opportunities. In 2003, Rwandan law imposed a minimum of 30% of parliamentary seats to be held by women. The government also pledged that girls' education would be encouraged, whilst giving women leadership roles in key institutions and within the community. In a report by the Huffington Post, 64% of Rwanda's parliamentary seats are being held by women leading the change in terms of female representation and having the highest number of women in parliament in the world. Women were now able to own land which meant girls could inherit from their parents and women could inherit from their families. Equal inheritance was also paid out upon divorce and there was easy access to contraception.
1: This is good.
0: Yeah this is great. It's it's good to see that women are the rebuilders of the nations and again very much community focused and you know, seen as after the war it would have just literally been 70% of the population are women that's you know you can't ignore us by that point you know mm-hmm.
1: yeah I know definitely and it's like you've rather than being like okay we'll wait we'll just use the 30% of guys that we've got you know what I mean they were like no <laughs> let's do you know what I mean let's actually bring up women they and just make it what it is equal and fair and yeah no it is um yeah i love it you know especially black women empowering black women like this um it's very similar to episode two where we look at thomas sankara as well and his the reforms he made to help support women
0: Mm -hmm. and there's definitely a correlation between women gaining opportunities and a country progressing
1: oh yeah yeah, definitely someone's definitely done some research into that we're we're basically saving governments
0: (laughs) (laughs) Companies, as they say, you know, women, plenty of women representation does well for company performance as well. So, yeah, definitely, you, know, you need us.
1: Next episode, you'll find out I'm um, the next CEO of a major company. Wait and see.
0: <laughs> Facebook, we're here. Another
1: key kind of policy um, comes in terms of health and HPV vaccination campaign that um, the Rwandan government ran. So Rwanda is currently on track to eliminate cervical cancer by encouraging 11 to 12 year old girls to get the HPV vaccine. So the goal of preventing cervical cancer is a health priority for the government. And they agreed a partnership with the pharmaceutical company Merck to offer Rwandan girls the opportunity to be vaccinated against HPV, which causes cervical cancer. This was the first time an African country had embarked on a national prevention programme for cervical cancer. Initially, the odds were stacked against Rwanda to achieve high HPV coverage, as after its war, the country was one of the poorest in the world. However, there are examples where the government offered a community-based approach in terms of spreading information about the HPV vaccine. So the first one being local community health workers who spent weeks canvassing their village, going to rural areas and informing parents about the upcoming vaccination. And this is really important as the village is not being kind of left behind. You know, in many countries, development and certainly public health initiatives may conveniently leave out those living in villages. So it's not just kind of like Mm -hmm. big city. That's what that's what we'll focus on.
0: Yeah, it's really good that they like reached out to those rural communities as well, because they're the ones that probably would be the most disconnected from these sort of opportunities, like those in the cities would probably be more educated and more likely to um, be able to access these medicines, but it's, it's good that they um, decided to reach out to those guys as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And community health workers work closely with nurses to educate the population
1: about the vaccine. And being able to prevent cervical cancer. Rwanda has a strong community health worker population with 45,000 spread across every village. Primary school teachers also looked out for 12 year old girls at the local school to educate them about the vaccine. And lastly, some church leaders preached about the importance of the vaccine weeks before it arrived in the local village. And the church continued to use kind of drama to depict scenes of cervical cancer's impact. Here again, education is key, and also the Rwandan government had to counter obviously other rumors about the vaccine causing infertility, which weren't true. So they were really there. Like I think the great thing is by making sure that everybody was moving at the same pace, you're able. They were able then to kind of counteract anything that wasn't basically fake news.
0: Yeah, they were. They were you know, against those WhatsApp rumors from early. So mm-hmm. that's people's that's a good thing need
1: to stop forwarding those whatsapp messages honestly gosh (laughs) having to re-educate my mother on the internet (laughs) it's
0: too much it's too much in 2001 rwanda unveiled a new flag and national anthem the flag was changed because of its association to the brutality of the 1994 genocide and the old flash was a bit trash. Um, just wait till you hear what it was. Or you can Google it as well. Oh yeah, people should definitely Google because we shouldn't want people coming in here like,
1: oh yeah, you said that the, you said that the old flag. No, the flag, it was trash, guys. Google first trash. and then, and then have a good debate about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Someone in the DMs like, you said the flag was trash it was it was it was <laughs> the previous flag was a red yellow green tricolor with a large black r if not for the r it was the same as guinea so the r was basically like it was written in ariel or something at least it wasn't times new roman so that is true that is true Oh, I don't know if it would have been
1: worse if it was in Comic Sans though. Oof. I was definitely your Comic Sans girl. I thought, like, yeah, I'm so creative. Got myself a Comic oh. Sans out here.
0: No, it was all about Century Gothic, I'll have you know. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. It just made everything just look so emotional.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am constantly having an emotional tie.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm just a basic Calibri girl now. The new flag represents national unity, respect for work, heroism, and confidence in the future, free from any associations the 1994 killings. It has no red, which is seen as connotations of blood spilt, or black, which is often seen as a symbolism of mourning and gloom. Instead, there were four colours, blue, green, yellow, and gold. The blue represents happiness and peace. The yellow is for economic development, green is for hope of prosperity and lush vegetation and the gold sun in the top right corner is seen as enlightenment. A new national anthem was introduced as well as many believe the old anthem which was adapted from a traditional folk tune glorifies the Hutus as they fought to overthrow Tutsu oppression. The new anthem refers to the Rwandans as one people rather than along their ethnic lines. So yeah I've got a faint memory of learning this in school so 2001. Yeah, must have been quite young, and um, yeah, I think that was when I realised that like countries could make up their own flags. <laughs> I <don't think> it <laughs> occurred to me that that was a thing. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Someone just made this up. And also,
1: what school did you go to that you were learning about this kind of thing? Like, I was, <laughs> wow, I was done I a didn't... massive <laughs> disservice.
0: <laughs> Who knew that Essex was so progressive? I know. <laughs>
1: who knew who knew to be fair coming from devon there wasn't really yeah
0: Uh, yeah also it must be nice to have a national anthem that talks about citizens rather than god only saving one person so that's that's quite nice there's a whole population out
1: here guys there's a whole population yeah
0: just the queen then okay cool that's fine don't worry (laughs) about me then
1: no i'll just carry along we've had a look at kind of like Rwanda coming out of genocide and coming back up and really helping the community. But it's also important to recognize that the country does have significant human rights issues. So, here we're really looking at you know, there are very much two sides to this story. And whilst on the exterior, Rwanda has succeeded in their rebirth, there have been some human rights issues which should be highlighted in order to have a balanced view of the story. So let's take a look at Paul Kagame, the man who is regarded as being responsible for the majority of these changes. So he was a former army commander who was victorious in the civil war and was the minister of defence and vice president until 2000, when he became Rwanda's president and has been president since 2000.
0: 2000. Why 2K? Millennium bug. Wow when Napster was a new piece of technology and iPods weren't invented. Imagine that. What was it then, like iPod Nano? There was no iPod, hun.
1: <laughs> there was no, jeez. Uh, there was no, I thought you said the iPods were there. There was no iPod. There, there was no iPod. Oh, this is definitely LimeWire season. <laughs> 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 wow, 2000. This is very much a long time. We are in 2020. <laughs> Um, as much as we wanted Believe to go back to 2019. <laughs> Please <laughs> take me back to 2019. Take me back. Kagami went on to change the constitution to enable him to run for a third election, winning 98.8% of the vote.
0: Hmm. Not despot-like at all, is it? No. Oh, not wait, at all. yeah.
1: 98.8%? Yeah. And he also, get this, won polls in 2003... 2010 and with 98% and 95% of the vote and you know can we be sure these are accurate and reliable I don't know that's a little question mark but I was thinking about this right 98.8% if I got any of these marks in my degree even I would question them I'm sorry I'd be like I think yeah. someone's made a mistake
0: <laughs> no <laughs> this is too much to get... it probably is a
1: quote from one of Veranda's citizens outlined the reason she voted for Kagame in a report from The Guardian where she says, he loves us, he gave us cows, brought schools for our children, a road and kept everything peaceful. I can never imagine having another president.
0: May, yeah. at this rate, she's not getting another president, huh. I mean... Oh, this well, she's, this guy. She's, happy,
1: she's happy with that at the moment. She's happy.
0: He's not your president. He's your autocrat, essentially. Mm-hmm. Kagame's regime, whilst he has transformed Rwanda, now has limited political opposition, very few dissenting voices in the media, and tight restrictions on freedom of speech in the political space. For example, prints and broadcast media only show pro-government views, with intimidation, threats, and prosecution being at stake. Kitsito Mahigo was a Rwandan gospel singer and genocide survivor. He released a critical song in 2014 challenging a genocide narrative and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was released in 2018 by Presidential Grace but was rearrested on the 13th of February 2020 and found dead on February the 17th under suspicious circumstances. There have been a significant number of opponents or critics of the Rwandan government who have ended up either dead or missing. In July 2017, the United Nations Subcommittee of the Prevention of Torture, SPT, cancelled their visit to Rwanda for due to lack of cooperation. This was the first time in 15 years a cancellation happened. In January of the following year, a Human Rights Watch researcher was denied access to Rwanda and a Rwandan consultant working with the Human Rights Watch was detained and held for six days kind of got us thinking, is there a way of restarting a country in a way that doesn't compromise human rights? I mean, if we look at uh Thomas Sankara and Paul Kagame both have introduced radical changes to their country, but at the cost of banning opposition, freedom of speech or we saw how Sankara you know, stopped uh, teachers from striking you know, they still need to be held accountable. If people aren't happy with the way the government is running things, they should be allowed to, you know, to be able to express that.
1: Yeah, no, I fully agree with you. I think These guys just weren't power mad. They were like, I did this for you guys, this for you guys, this, that, and the other, and I should be allowed to now, you know, you guys don't need to make any decisions. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's really frustrating, because if they had just stuck to all the good they were doing, things could, you know, potentially be so different today. But, oh, Mm. no, you've got to go out there and win elections left right and center with a question mark
0: do you know what I mean yeah. like what even it's like just you know that despot life it's just so attractive you know mm-hmm. and often you know that's why we say in the UK that we urge journalists to always challenge the government which they need to do right now uh-huh. uh more as they have the ability of being able to challenge the government without ending up in a cell the next morning yeah do you know I what mean? think you want to be able of... to have
1: that freedom
0: <laughs> We we take that for granted. You forget that we can just sit here and say that we don't like, you know, people in parliament, and we, we know that we're not going to get arrested the next day. You know, yeah. And also
1: that musician
0: as well. May.
1: Damn, Paul bloke was just challenging something, and all of a sudden you're in prison for ten years.
0: Yeah. Gosh. And then these mysterious circumstances, and there is actually a list. Um, we'll probably we'll post it in the episode notes of all the um people that have been recorded, because who knows? There might be people who haven't been recorded who um, have either gone missing or have died because they spoke up uh, against the Rwandan government.
1: Ah, oh, and it was going so well, but... Yeah. Here we are. As we've seen, obviously, Rwanda has a very, you know... Again, that kind of Jekyll and Hyde. It has this massive kind of genocidal um, history... And then also these human rights issues, it's tried to come back, but at the same time, these issues very much still remain within the country. But did it have to take a brutal genocidal war for these types of reforms to have taken place? You know, just going back to what we're looking at Gakaka and Ubedehe and kind of HPV vaccination and all of that, does it really need to take a genocidal war for those things to happen? Because that's something we also saw, you know, with the UK and the introduction of the National Health Service and, you know, council housing only after a war. Like, can we not just learn lessons in terms of being fair to people regardless of there not being a war? Come on.
0: Yeah, and I know that, I think a lot of people are hoping that after these current events, a similar thing would happen, that there'd be some kind of sweeping reforms that would potentially help to put people, you know, help people that are perhaps disadvantaged or slighted. But, yeah, it's it's a shame that quite often it takes for, you know, a terrible event to have occurred before the government helps people. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I fully agree.
0: In this case, it's like Rwanda is going back to their heritage and their traditional practices. And is it because things are, you know, other African countries within the continent, you know, had too much time elapsed for them to go back to that point, for them to remember their pre-colonial practices, because many of them had been indoctrinated for quite a long time. So the idea of being able to go back um, and review the way their former systems were, um, that might have, it might have passed, you know, you're kind of past that point of return.
1: Yeah, I know, I fully agree. Yeah, some of them kind of when you're looking at the DRC, for example, was it just too big and so many things have happened that actually it makes it difficult. But the great thing about rwanda is that it had such a strong kind of post-colonialist culture and it felt like obviously let's bring that back to really help us to move forward and come back from this and it yeah really to me brought back this idea of you know using having african solutions to solve african problems and i'm yeah. not saying this always works like obviously mm huge human rights issues out here that is there let's not forget that let's not
0: shy away from that
1: no definitely not but i do think when we're talking about some of the reforms that they did bring into place those were rooted in that culture and it worked because it was rooted in the culture and people's heritage so yeah yeah an interesting topic with Miranda.
0: yeah it's one of those ones where like When I first came across this topic, we were like, oh, this is amazing. Look at this country. It's just, it's just done the most. They've increased their life, you know, expectancy. And then you're like, ah, the human rights issues. Okay. You can't ignore that.
1: Thank you for listening, guys. We're now mid season. Yes. Um, We'll be back. (laughs) We'll be back with four more episodes to wrap up season one from the 5th of May. Uh, we are off to get suntans from our respective London windows. So, yeah. <laughs> and don't forget to subscribe so you can get the latest episode straight to your device.
0: Also, don't forget to drop us a rating on your podcast platform, and don't forget to leave us a review as well. Five stars would be amazing.
1: We're also on Instagram as at It's a Continent Pod, so feel free to send us your suggestions for future topics. We've already had a few suggestions, so keep them coming and keep keep a watch out. Definitely keep a watch out for the next four episodes. So, yeah,
0: we'll see you and uh, yeah, take care of yourselves, guys. Take care of yourselves. Bye.